You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I uh, emailed back and forth this week with Pastor Ricky Beck. Ricky is the pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, Buffalo. And I just asked him how they were doing and how we as a church could be praying for them as they, in their community, in that city, deal with the aftermath of uh, the terrible tragedy there uh, last weekend. And uh, Ricky said that overall they're doing well, but asked for prayer, for peace and rest in the community, to pray for patience, to wait on justice, and uh, he just mentioned that there's, there's a few people in the church that are teachers and have just uh, a kind of spend time uh, in the community working and just, just appreciate prayers that, um, that God would uphold them and use them in a mighty way. So uh, if you, as you think about the folks in Buffalo, be praying for Ricky and his church in this time, if you would. Also, I want to just say thanks. Uh, many of you were praying for Leanne and I this week. We were able to, really grateful to be able to go out west for the uh, uh, GCC Canada Pastors and Wives Retreat. And uh, just so great. What a great, just a great time. I'll just be honest with you, I had a ton of fun. Right? I had a fun week. I don't know what kind of a week you had. I had a lot of fun this week. So don't hate me because of it. Just, you know, be that as an answer to prayer. We had a good time. So great, so great to be able to connect with other pastors and wives. And uh, listen, I am so excited about what God is doing in the GCC. I'm so thrilled to be part of the Great Commission Collective in Canada. Uh, God is at work in remarkable ways. Uh, just a couple of examples. Uh, uh, Edmonton, the church plant in Edmonton, will launch in September. They already are actually meeting. It's already kind of basically happening, but their official launch is in September, Pastor Kyle Hunter. And I think they're called Redemption uh, Church. But anyway, that's happening. Uh, Edmonton, so good things happening there. Uh, Eric Ricard in Montreal, they've got their, their small group of people has grown to about 50 or so in Montreal. And uh, listen, just my, my opinion, my take, uh, Quebec is hard soil. Hard soil for the gospel. It's a and listen, God is at work and uh, working. Uh, Pastor Eric and his team there, just grateful for that, and just great testimonies of how God is at work in the lives of not only those who are leading these ministries, but the the people in those churches. And um, I'm just just so encouraged, grateful to have the time to build some relationships. And um, speaking of relationships, Leanne and I. We just had a whole bunch of dates this week, too. So I know it's great. If you get a chance to date your spouse, just do it. Highly recommend it. So uh, we had a great week. Thank you for praying. Thank you for making the way for us to go and to do it. And, uh, but now I'm back. I'm here, and I want to preach. I got a sermon for you from Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, just reach out nearby. You'll see there should be a pew Bible near you. Just lay hold of that. Whoever gets it first gets it, all right? In your pew, no fighting, please, over the Bible. If you have an app in your phone, power it up, whatever, get it open. The Philippians 4, and our text this morning, we'll be looking at verses 10 to 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, we're continuing our series in the book of Philippians called To Live is Christ. And the subject of today's sermon is contentment. 
contentment. And all God's people said, oh, pastor, please, not contentment. It's going to, I came to church. See, I knew they'd make me feel bad at church today. That's why I didn't want to come. Oh, I'm not here to make you feel bad. I want to make you happy in the Lord. That's why we want to look at this subject of contentment, particularly with regards to money and stuff. Money and stuff. The Bible has a lot to say about money and things. Did you know that? A lot to say. In fact, there's well over 2,000 verses in Scripture on money. Over 2,000. That's a lot. A ministry colleague of mine pointed this out to me. I didn't, didn't realize this. But at least 25% of the teaching of Jesus, as we have in the Gospels, at least 25% of what he taught had to do in some, has to do in some way with money and possessions. That's a major emphasis, a major focus. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense that the Scripture says a lot about money and things because so much of our lives is affected by it. I mean, when you think about it, when you, when you don't have enough, you know, when you're lacking, it does things to you that can really take over. Like sometimes you feel anxious and worried about what, what, what are we going to do here and where is this going to come from? And when you're feeling anxious, that can really take over and start to take up a lot of the oxygen in your heart, take up your mental and emotional margins. Sometimes we feel anxious when we don't have enough. Sometimes we get envious because others do have enough and we hate them for it because they, they have, we don't say that out loud, but we quietly in our hearts, we're envious toward them. And uh, sometimes also we can get resentful toward God because he, he, you, you gave to them, but what, what about me? And we can, it can really take over in our hearts and minds when we don't have enough, when we, or when we feel we don't have enough, when we feel we do have enough, when we're well supplied, that can mess with us too because we can, we can get an unhealthy kind of independence, even pride and look what I've got and look how I've done for myself. Have a look at this verse, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Get it on the screen here for you. As for the rich in this present age, and the word rich we'll say is a, rel is a, a relative term. There's a lot of places in the world, I don't know if you feel rich or not, but there's a lot of places in the world that say, oh, you're rich, baby, you're rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Doesn't mean like, ooh, he's a hottie, but like haughty in terms of proud, arrogant, okay? Charge the rich in this present age Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You see what can happen when it comes to money and stuff is it can create this separation between me and God where I begin to put my hopes on what I have or what I believe I'll have instead of on God. Charge them not to be haughty in order to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's the part that we forget sometimes. Everything I have, I have because the Lord gave it to me. It all comes from him. And so there's problems that can really develop, that really develop when it comes to, to having. Or how about 1 Timothy 6, verse 10? Have a look at this verse. For the love of money, now not necessarily having money, but the love of money, you can be rich, you can be poor and love money. The love of money is a root of, notice, all kinds of evils. All kinds of bad things happen and spring out of our hearts when we love money. It is through this craving, now craving is a discontentment. 
It is through this craving that some have noticed wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, when we don't have enough, it can mess with us. And when we do have enough in our own estimation, it can mess with us too. We're just a mess when it comes to money and possessions. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of evils. I'm told that my great-grandfather once said that if, if money is the root of all evil, then I like a little bit of the root. Now, that's a little bit of misquoting the verse, but I think some of us kind of get that. Like, if God's, doing a, if God's doing a focus group on people who are going to be poor and people are going to be rich and see how it messes with, mess with us, there's lots of us who be like, I'll be in the rich focus group. Okay, go, put me, saddle me with those burdens, God. All kinds of money and wealth. And give, I'll, I'll, I'll bear it, Lord, I'll bear it. But you notice the craving, that kind of craving has caused them to wander away from the faith, pierce themselves with many pangs. You see, having too much can do things to our hearts, namely draw them away from the Lord. Here's the bottom line, loved ones. If we will be faithful and fruitful in our lives, then we must have a biblical perspective on money and things then that's why I'm really eager to preach this text because I, I think it is formative and by God's grace can have a life-altering impact on our attitude toward what we have or what we don't have here in Philippians 4. Now, Philippians 4 verses 10 to 20 is all one section, okay? I'm dividing it into two. We're gonna focus on verses 10 to 13 today. But verses 14 to 20, there Paul is talking about giving. Here in verses 10 to 13, he's talking about having. So today we're looking at the, the having part. Now, I think it's helpful to make, it's, it's easier to make sense of this text, the context, when we under, remember a bit of the story here, a bit of the background. Paul was in prison in Rome, you recall, and it was about a one-month journey from Philippi, the, the church that he was writing to were in Philippi. is about a one-month journey away. And um, we understand the occasion for this letter is that Epaphroditus had come from the church at Philippi with gifts for Paul. Paul was in prison, and in that context in those days, you had to pay your own way to be there. If you didn't have money, you didn't eat. You had to provide your own clothing. You were, you were totally, you're locked up, but you had to take care of yourself. And um, uh, the church of Philippi heard about Paul's situation, and they loved Paul, and they sent, uh, they sent money and gifts to help him, and Epaphroditus was the one that brought those things to Paul. Now, Epaphroditus is heading back home to Philippi, and before he goes, Paul sits down and writes a letter to the church of Philippi, and one of the reasons he wrote this letter was to tell them thanks, to express appreciation and joy in the Lord for their kindness to him. And that's what's going on beginning at verse 10. He writes, uh, he's, he's now at the close of his letter taking substantial space to speak to their kindness to him in the Lord. Notice what he says in verse 10. So he, but right before he tucks this letter in Epaphroditus' pocket and sends him off, he finishes his letter like this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, if you read this with the wrong mindset, you might totally get this wrong. Like, Paul is not saying, finally, 
Finally, at last, I've been here going hungry, naked and poor. Finally, at long last, you've answered my call to help me. It's about time. Okay, that's, you could misread it that way. That's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's saying, you know, there is, there is a length of time between you wanting to help me and being able to help me. And we don't know what the reasons were. But Paul really is grateful. And he clarifies that, doesn't he, in the middle of verse 10. You were indeed concerned for me. You, you did care. It's not like you didn't care. You, you did care. Um, uh, but you did not have the opportunity, you, you had no opportunity to provide, but now they have. And so he's going to tell them thanks. But notice what he says in verse 11. This is so instructive. Ever the pastor, he pauses here before he finishes his note of thanksgiving. He pauses here to say something about the concept of need. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Well, what's the secret? What's the secret? It's no secret. It's right in the page in front of you. Verse 13. You see that? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a secret. It's not a secret. It's right there. It's been there a long time since before you were born. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Loved ones, when it comes to the issue of money and stuff, the followers of Jesus Christ are called to be content. You and I, As the followers of Jesus, we love and follow him. We are called to be content. Are you content with what you have, with what you don't have? You're called to it. It's interesting how Paul uses the word need, isn't it, in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. The funny thing is, is that there's a sense in which he was in need. He had real physical needs. In fact, if you look later, verse 18, the same section, the next paragraph, verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So you see, I, I got everything I need now because Epaphroditus came and provided for me. So, so there's a sense in which he, he did have need, but he uses this word, you can almost put quotation marks around it when he says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I think he's speaking in terms of a, a feeling in his heart, maybe of anxiousness, maybe of craving, maybe of aching, maybe of longing. Paul says, that's not, the, that's not the kind of need I had. Yes, I had need, but I'm not speaking in terms of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Or, or the, the word there speaks of a self-sufficiency, but in a good sense of self-sufficiency. Like, I have what I need. There's a kind of, a kind of peace that I have inside with where I'm at. Even if it feels like or looks like I'm short on things, I have a contentment in me regardless of my situation. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low or humbled. Do you know how to be brought low? Some of you have been brought low and you're in a position now where you're just like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty humbled here. I've been set back maybe financially in my life, a setback. And some of you know what that is like. Paul says, I know, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. 
to abound is to have excess or more than enough. Reminds me when I was a kid, my dad used to take me sometimes this, this little family-owned rest shop, uh, rest shop, restaurant. Um, it was called uh, Northcrest Pizza Villa, but their pizza was pretty good, but their burgers were to die for. And uh, I used to go in there. We'd go in there for lunch. I ordered the same thing every time. We'd get a cheeseburger and fries. And uh, Gus was the owner. If a man's name is Gus, you know he can cook. And uh, he's, he's the owner. Well, he used to... He used to give you a cheeseburger, put that on the plate, and he would cover it in French fries. Like, you can't see the cheeseburger because you got so many French fries. He slides that across the table. Sorry, I'm this little kid, 10, 11 years old, right? Slides it across the table, and he used to say, he used to say, you have to eat all of it or you pay double. And uh, I mean, I would, I would eat all of it. I never had to worry about paying. Dad always paid. But, but um, I remember eating it. Like, I've never been pregnant. But I'm telling you, like, I have a, I have a sense of walking out of there, like, oh, the, the pain, the pain, the self-inflicted pain of eating all this. That's the kind of excess here or abounding that Paul's talking about. More than enough, more than anything I could, I could want. I got extra. In verse 12, in any and every circumstance, so in good times and in bad times, when I'm missing meals and when I'm putting away leftovers. He says in both of those things, he says, I know how to... I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, every and every circ- in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. It's Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through him. The him I believe here is Jesus. It's Christ. I can do all things through him. And what does he do? He strengthens me. See, being in Christ... I have the resources that I need from him to face whatever situation he calls me to. I can face, I can face hunger and I can face plenty because of Christ. Or put it another way, Paul's like, I know how to lose my job. I know how to, be, how to get demoted. I know how to be passed over for somebody else. Again, I know how to handle it when the fridge is empty. Paul's like, I know, I know how to face it when there isn't enough this month for rent. I know how to deal with it when the money, the funds for school just aren't there. Because I know that. I know this. He also says, I know how to abound. I know how to deal with it, how to handle it when I've got more than enough, when all the bills are paid and the fridge is full and the accounts are balanced, when I got lots of extra. You say, hey, sign me up for that. Put me in that group. But remember, one is not necessarily easier than the other. In fact, Jesus had a lot to say about the dangers of wealth and what it can do to you. Look at this first. We'll put on the screen here, Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with notice, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with what? With difficulty. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. You got a needle with a little hole in it. And you got a camel. A very nervous looking camel. <laughs> Fixing that. Try this out here. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. If I told you, you can have cash for life starting today. What is it, the payout? It's like $1,000 a week, this cash for life thing. You can have cash for life starting today. But it will significantly increase the likelihood of you winding up in hell. Would you take it? Would you want it? You'd tread carefully, wouldn't you? See, we often dramatically underestimate the power that money can have and things can have, even when we have it. How about 1 Timothy 6, verse 9? It says, but those who desire to be rich, notice desire to be rich, it doesn't say who are rich, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare. You know what a snare is, right? It's a trap. You didn't see it there, right? Little Mousy, he was in there chewing on cheese, didn't realize it would kill him. He, he didn't see it. It's a snare. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, like plunging into a pool, that plunge people into, notice, notice, ruin and destruction. It can, it can mess with you. This desire to be rich, it's a trap, but it's pervasive, isn't it? Do you see the goodness of God in calling us to contentment? To be content. Think about it. Think about how we see this in Scripture. The love of money. It was the love of money that caused the rich ruler to reject Christ and walk away. It was the love of money and recognition that caused Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 to lie to the church and they dropped dead. It was the love of money that drove Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver, the person of Jesus. What's worth more to me? What do I love more? Judas says, I'll take the money. The love of money drove him to betray the Son of God. Don't think there isn't a little bit of Judas lurking around in the dark shadows of our hearts. It's the love of money. See, loving money, being discontented, has a way of choking out love for God. Like if you're choking, you ever choked on a piece of food and it's locked in? I don't mean like you aspirate something. I aspirate stuff all the time. It's pretty embarrassing actually. But, but you're, if you're coughing, you're breathing. But I mean like you choke on something and it's in there horrific experience and it's blocked off the oxygen and you're in danger and you've, something's got to be done and you, somebody knows the Heimlich or you're ramming yourself into a table corner or something. It's got to be done because it's taking the life from you. That's what happens. That's what happens, loved ones, when we fall in love with money because, you see, here's the thing. We can only really have one true love. You are made for one true love and money and stuff can be a rival lover and it consumes us it chokes the life out of us it blinds us to the curses of wealth spawns an independency and a self-sufficiency away from the lord and distracts us from our central purpose you see the call on the life of a believer is to be content to be content it's dangerous to not be now i've said use the word content a lot and contentment 
probably a good time as any to ask, what exactly do I mean by contentment? What do, what do we mean? So here's my, I tried, this is my best try, okay, at describing to you biblical contentment, what Paul means here when he says in verse 11, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What does that mean? Here's my best try at that. Let's get that definition up there. For a believer, being content is having an inward peace. It's, it's largely, not exclusively, but largely a feeling. It's having an inward peace about what I have and where I'm at that I have by faith in the sufficiency of Christ and the faithfulness of God to give me what I need to do what he wants me to do. That's contentment. Now, some of the English scholars in the room are like, that smells a little bit like an un- a run-on sentence. I don't think it is, but work with me, okay? I'm trying. What do you want? I'm trying, okay? Here's what, here it is again. For a believer, being content is having an inward peace. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not that I don't have ambition. Paul, Paul was an ambitious man. You, you show me. You show me somebody else in the Bible who had greater ambition than the Apostle Paul. I'll buy you lunch for a week, Okay? Okay, we're going to eat McDonald's, but I'll buy you lunch for a week. <laughs> Inward peace. It's not a lack of ambition. It's not an ambivalence. No, but it's an inward peace that come, that I have about what, what I have and where I'm at in life, that I have it by faith in the sufficiency of Jesus. Because see, I've, I've got this Jesus, and even if I don't have money and stuff, I got Jesus, and he's worth more, and he makes me happier than any of that stuff can. So it comes from being in Christ, and it comes by faith in the faithfulness of God, because I know that God will supply for me whatever it is that I need to do what he wants me to do. When it comes to me doing what God wants me to do, he will always provide for me. It may not be often, maybe sometimes, not what I kind of would like to have or wish I had, but I will say this, it's amazing what God does sometimes when we ask him. But I know that I know that God is faithful, and so he'll give to me whatever, he, whatever I need to do, what he wants me to do. This is what we're talking about when we talk about contentment. We're not talking about mastering your own emotions. In antiquity, Stoics, there was these Stoic philosophers who believed that the, the, the wisest of people, or at the heart of all virtue, was a kind of wisdom whereby people could become independent of all things and people and just be at peace within themselves. Relying on themselves and resisting the pressures, the felt pressures that come with our circumstances. You, you hear that and you're like, that almost sounds biblical. And the key word is almost, because it's not biblical. Paul, and he talks about being content here, he's not talking about being zen. You, you can be, you can have a kind of real contentment in terms of feeling zen and cool and not know Jesus. There's lots of people, you know, you think about it. There's people that you know in your life that have a kind of self-discipline to be okay with who they are and where they're at and with what they have, and they're far away from Jesus. They don't know Jesus. We are not, what Paul is talking about here is not a personal zenness, like mastering your emotions and getting a hold of your mind and your thoughts and your hearts and being all reserved and contained. That is not Christianity. If you do that, you get the glory for that, not Jesus. 
What Paul is talking about here is a kind of contentment that comes not from looking inside of ourselves and saying, I'm cool with this, I'm cool, but comes from outside of ourselves, from God by looking to him and saying, Jesus, I've got Jesus, I'm good with anything, and God is faithful to give me whatever it is I need to do what he wants me to do. And that gives me a kind of peace in my heart that is biblical contentment. It comes from him. It's not arrived at either by making comparisons. We've tried that on all of us, haven't we? Just like, now remember, there's people in the world that are much less fortunate than you. And it's true. But biblical contentment isn't achieved by comparing your, your lot with a lot of others. That leads to other problems like pride and arrogance and envy. No, it's not by making comparisons. It's by faith in God, by looking to Jesus. So again, what we mean by contentment, it's an inward peace that I have about what I have and where I'm at that comes to me, that I have it by faith in the sufficiency of Jesus and the faithfulness of God to give me whatever it is I need in order to do what he wants me to do. That's what we're talking about. Now, at this point, I think it's also fair for us to ask this question, why does it matter so much? Why does it matter so much? We've seen already, I think, part of an answer to that question, why does it matter? Because we recognize the dangers and the pitfalls that, we come, that come our way when we're not contented. Namely, there can create a distance between myself and the Lord. We've seen that. But I've got three reasons in particular I want you to make note of. But why does it matter that we are content? Number one, why does it matter? It's what God wants. It's what God wants for us. God wants us to be content. Hey, listen, here's the reality. Let's just call a spade a spade. We don't need any other reason, any other reasons. If God says, this is what I want for you, then really it kind of should be enough for us to note that. It's what God wants. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. Discontentment is born out of a preoccupation with self. I'm called to love God, to love my neighbor, but a settled discontentment in my heart is a sign or a signal that my mind is on me, not on God. And that's not what he wants. So why does it matter that I am content? It's what God wants. Number two, it's for your joy. It's for your joy. Let me ask you a really weird question for a pastor to be asking you. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Oh, I'm not supposed to be happy. No, no, listen, listen. Do you want to be happy? Of course you want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. We were made for joy. The problem is, is that people like you and me, we go looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Remember the text that Pastor Brett taught from a couple weeks ago? Psalm 16, verse 11, one of my favorite verses. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I've got a secret for you, ready? But don't tell anybody, they might get the wrong idea. God wants you to be happy too. Like seriously, it doesn't sound biblical. It's in the Bible, Pastor Pep taught it a couple weeks ago. Unless he's a heretic, unless we got the wrong Bible. He's like, oh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> he's not a heretic. God wants you to be happy too. Happy in him. Because that's the place where true happiness is found. Look at 
I'm not making this up. Look in Philippians. You don't have to go far. Look at Philippians 3, verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brothers, or it could be rendered my brothers and sisters, says the whole church, finally, my brothers, rejoice in your full bank account. Rejoice in a full fridge. Rejoice in getting that promotion. Rejoice in what you drive to school tomorrow morning. Rejoice in, does your Bible say any of that stuff? No, because that's not where joy is found. Paul says rejoice in the Lord because that's where the joy is found. He says it again, doesn't he? Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord on weekends. Oh, no. Rejoice in the Lord always, it says. Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. When we are discontented, our discontentment robs us of this kind of joy because we fool ourselves into thinking we believe the lie that those things that we don't have or are trying to hold on to is what's going to make us happy. But it's the Lord that will make us happy. He's the one that fully satisfies. So why does it matter? It's what God wants. It's for your joy. Thirdly, it testifies to the truth. The truth that Jesus is precious. That he's our treasure. Have a look at Philippians 1 verse 21. Paul says there, for to me, to live is Christ. My whole life is about Jesus. He's my purpose. He's my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. He's my ambition. He's my, he is my joy. He is my treasure. For me to live is Christ. And then, and to die is gain. What a super weird thing to say. To die is gain. Everybody knows dying is not gain. Dying is emphatically losing. You lose everything. You don't get to take nothing with you. I've seen people buried with things, but we all know it's in the ground. I mean, you probably break laws if you dug it up to check and see if it's still there, but it's still there. You know, there's no U-Hauls buying hearses. You can't, you can't take it with you. you. You leave it all behind. All your stuff, all your money, all your clothes, all your cars, all your relationships, all your achievements, your diplomas, your degrees, they all stayed behind. You ain't taking nothing with you. It's emphatic loss. Everybody knows that. What's Paul going on about here about gain? What's that all about? Well, verse 22 of Philippians 1. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. What, what, what's a better prospect for me, living or dying? I'm hard-pressed between the two. And I say, I'm not. I want to live. But Paul says this. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Oh. Oh, I see what you're saying. To be with Jesus is far better because compared to everything else, money, stuff, you name it, compared to all that, Jesus is better. That's why in Philippians 3, Paul says, I can count all that stuff as rubbish. For you Brits, you love that rendering, rubbish. 
If you're American, trash. If you're from Ontario, garbage. I count all those things as rubbish compared to, I'm not saying they are rubbish, but compared to Jesus, take it to the curb. You see, the reason it matters so much that we're content is because it testifies to the truth that Jesus is better, that he is the treasure, that he's where it's at. You've sang this song, I know many times, Christ is my reward. That ring a bell? Christ is my reward and all of my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. You ever overheard yourself singing that song in church before today? We've sung it many times. Do you realize what you're singing? Have you ever come to church and sung a song and not really thought about what you're singing? You just sort of sing along because everybody's singing the words on the screen there and you're just kind of not there. Here's the thing. You've probably done that with this song. But what you were singing is that Jesus is my reward compared to anything else that can ever come my way. Jesus is better. Christ is my reward, all my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Do you believe that? Through every trial, my soul will sing. No turning back, I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need, everything I need is in you. Why does it matter that we're content? Because it testifies to the truth that Jesus is enough. So we've seen the main thing. The call is that we're to be content. We got an understanding of what we mean by being content or content meant. It's that it's an inner peace that comes to us by faith in the fact that Jesus is sufficient and that God is faithful to provide for me to do whatever it is that he wants me to do. And we've seen that the reason this is so important is that it's what God wants, it's for your joy, and it testifies to the truth. Now we come to the piastre de resistance. How's my French? Is that French? Yeah, I think it is French. And that is this issue of how. Okay, okay. So we've got the what, we got the definition, we got the why. <laughs> but do this one for me, Pastor. How do I get there? Because everybody talks about the importance of being content, being content in all things. But how do you do that? It's really hard. How do we do it? Well, I think this text shows us. How do you become content? You get there by learning, and you get there by believing. You get there by learning, you get there by believing. First, you get there by learning. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How did Paul get to this place of inner peace by faith and sufficiency of Christ and the faithfulness of God? He got there by learning. He learned some truths about the sufficiency of Christ. He learned some truths, we could say mainly, firstly, about the worth of Christ. And that did something for him. It helped him to set in proper perspective what he had in Jesus compared to everything else. Have a look at Philippians 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of, notice, 
the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see, there's the treasure. It's Jesus. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus compared to everything else, all my achievements, my resume, my history, my things, everything else compared to him, Jesus is more because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Jesus is the treasure. Loved ones, understand this, that being a Christian isn't, it's not a transaction with God where, where, he, where he, he gives us whatever we want to make us happy. No, rather, he gives us what will make us happy, namely himself. That's at the heart of Christianity. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to know God. That's what eternal life is. Jesus said, this is eternal life, knowing God. And he, he's where the joy is at. He's where the satisfaction is at. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we know the one who is worth more than anything else. We get to that place of contentment by learning, by learning the worth of Christ. And not only the worth of Christ, but also too in this text, the work of Christ. Verse 13, I can, or I have the capacity, I have the ability to do all things, face down having abundance or not having abundance, being raised up or being brought low. I can do all those things through him who strengthens me. By the way, notice this verse that's maybe tattooed on the back of your favorite athlete. This verse has a context. Okay? I mean, there's, there's no question that God can enable you to do all kinds of great feats and wonders in this life. But the context of this, of this verse has to do with money and stuff. Being without it or having more than you know what to do with it. Loved ones, how we get to this place of contentment is learning the worth of Christ and also the work of Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So being in Jesus, what I learn when I read the Bible is that being in Jesus affords me tremendous, awesome resources. In Jesus, through Jesus, I've got the Holy Spirit in me, working in me to, to affect my desires, to, to change what I want, to, to refresh and renew my affections. I've got the promises of God in Jesus, through Jesus. I've got promises so that even when everything around me is giving way, I've got rock-solid promises underneath me to uphold me that I can count on. Through Jesus, I've also got fellowship. I've got a Christian family. I mean, the Lord is always with me. The Spirit indwells me, but... In Jesus, I've, got, I've also got the saints with me. I'm not alone in this Christian life. I've got others to encourage me and to, to pray for me. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. See, we've got to learn these things. In learning these things, like the filling of the Spirit, like the promises of God, like the faithfulness of God, like the worth of Jesus Christ, like the reality of the fellowship of the saints, it's through these things as we learn about the worth of Christ and the work of Christ, we grow in contentment. Can you think of today a better incentive to be in the Bible? Because there is where we're going to learn about, we're going to see the worth of Jesus and the work of Jesus that enables me to be content. And being content, you know, you know, loved ones, it's a slippery fish, isn't it? I'm not much of a fisherman. I try to have a little, very little to do with fish, except for when they're cooked and I'm eating them. 
But you grab onto those suckers. They're pretty slippery little things. Also, Tim, a bit of a wuss, so I'm, I don't handle them right and everything like that. I'm just, I'm not really a man, really, but you know, <laughs> you get the idea. Being content is a very slippery fish. But you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Are you learning that? Are you reading your Bible looking to see Jesus? Are you reading the scriptures looking to see his worth in his work? You could pray it. Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see Jesus. Be like the, the Greeks who came to Philip in John 12 and 21 and said, Sir, sir, we want to see Jesus. Or if you grew up reading the King James, it says, we would see Jesus. I want to see him. You could pray that. Father, I want to see him, to see Jesus. How do we get there? How do we get to this place of contentment? We get it by learning the worth of Christ and the work of Christ. Finally, we get there by believing, by believing. I love the emphatic, faith-filled declaration that verse 13 is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He knows it, and he believes it. I must know about the sufficiency of Christ and the work of Christ, but I also must believe in Jesus. You can learn some things, but you've got to believe the things that you're learning in Scripture. You say, well, how do I, how do, I do that practically? I'd say three things. One, look to Christ. Put your eyes on him. It's so easy for us to be looking at our circumstances, isn't it? Because our circumstances are our circumstances are right around us. But loved ones, if we're going to trust in the Lord, we've got to put our eyes on the Lord. Is there discontentment in your heart? Is there discontentment there? Look to Jesus. Look to him. Put your eyes on him. Lean on Jesus. When I say lean on Jesus, I, I mean... I mean, lean in with the full weight of your confidence in him. Lord Jesus, I need you. All I have ultimately, truly, is you. And you are enough for me. I've sung that, Lord. But now I'm leaning into you, the weight of my confidence, to trust you that you are enough for me. Oh, that I would experience that, that I would taste that, that I would know that, that I'd be able to say, just like Paul, with that kind of conviction, Lord, I'm leaning into you. I need you. I don't, I don't come there naturally on my own. I can't get there on my own. I've tried to get there on my own, but I can't. I need you. So look to Jesus and then lean on him. Go to him pleading, God, do this in me. In the confidence that his word says that you can do all things. You can face poverty. You can face humiliation. You can face hardship. You can face victory. You can face promotion. You can face having all these things. You can do it faithfully through him who strengthens you. Lean the weight of your confidence in him saying, God, help me to trust you for that. Help me, because on my own, I can't help me. Help me. Look to Christ. Lean on Christ. Finally, express that belief, that faith, by laying it all before Christ. Lay it all before him. With a mustard seed of faith, Lord, I believe you can. Now grant me strength to face what? What are you facing? Maybe you have need lack. Lord, I've asked you, I'm asking again to provide, but if it is your good and gracious will that I go without, 
then help me, Lord God, to face this faithfully and victoriously. What is it? You tell him. Everybody here, everybody here has got something different going on. Maybe it's having. Lord, you have given me abundance. Maybe you would acknowledge today that God, you have given, you have put in my hands a, a frightening amount of provision. I see those verses about the rich, hard for them to get in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you think of your own situation. You say, Lord, you have given me so much. Grant me grace, Lord God, to not trust in it, to not let it come between you and me. Whatever it is, ask the Lord, whatever it is you're facing, name it before him, lay it before him. You get there to contentment by believing. And we express that belief, that faith, by looking to Christ, leaning on Christ, laying it all before him. So let me review, and then I'm going to pray. Now, don't pack up. Sounds like the preacher's done. You're ready to pack up here, but don't pack up yet. I just want to review, but I want to lead us in prayer to close. But I want to make sure you remember, see the whole picture here. So remember, the followers of Christ, let me ask you, you were listening to the sermon. The followers of Christ are called to be what? Content. Good job. You get your sticker, right? To be content. How are you doing in that? How are you doing in that area? It's important. The followers of Christ are called to be content. What is contentment? It's that inward peace that comes to us by faith in the sufficiency of Jesus. He's enough. Even if I don't have anything else, I got him, I got enough. And it's also by faith in the faithfulness of God to give me whatever I need to do what he wants me to do. I trust him to do that. That's what we're talking about, that inward peace that comes not from me being Zen, but from him. That's what it is, why it's important, lots of reasons, but it's what God wants, it's for your joy. It testifies to the truth that Jesus is enough. Finally, how do we become content? By whating and by whating, by learning and by believing and trusting myself to him. Now I wanna pray and I wanna ask you to join me in prayer and there will be a couple different parts of this prayer that some for you will be very relevant and then for others will be very relevant to others around you. The pastor Alex is going to come and prepare to lead us in a final song and as he does so, let's bow together in prayer.